0: All right, well, I am uh, grateful for this opportunity to to come and share God's word with everyone here tonight. And uh, tonight, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 3. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. The title of the sermon tonight is War, Failure, and Future Redemption. So we'll be reading Judges chapter 3. This is what God's word says. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formally. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Let's go before the Lord and ask him to bless his preaching of his word. Our gracious Father, Lord, as we approach a text that is heavy and filled with so much sin and depravity, Lord, may we be reminded about uh, what we can learn from this text Uh, may we learn or may we be illuminated by your Holy Spirit. Would any truth that comes out of my heart or my mouth be impressed on the hearts of everyone listening? And uh, may you uh, be with all of us tonight. We ask you in in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm hearing like a ringing in here. I don't know if everyone else is good though. Um, So when we think about the Lord testing us, the idea of the, the sovereign creator of the universe, all-powerful, holy. He's going to test his people from time to time. And we think, when we think about that, that's kind of a scary thought, to think about God testing us. And I really want to just lay out the nature of God, uh, what it means that God tests us. So when we think about our text, there's it's mentioned twice that he tests Israel. So I want to, us to have a doctrine of God's testing um, before we go into the text of Judges. So first thing I think we should keep in mind is that God, he's all-knowing, he's omniscient. This means that when he's testing us, he's not doing it to, to learn what we're going to do. He's not, he's not doing it to, to find out what actions uh, we're going to do, and then he's going to respond, um, because he can see into the future. So this testing, is it's not for God to find out something. It's actually for us to find out something about ourselves. So when we think about the nature of testing, that is one thing that we have to, to hold in view, that God is all-knowing. Something else I wanted to mention is uh, kind of just give a short definition of the nature of God testing. And I kind of came up with a definition to kind of help us um, as we think through this um, passage. So when we think of the Lord testing, you might think of it as a circumstance or an event that is caused by God, intended for you to measure your obedience to Him. So when we think of what a test is, another way to say this, maybe a more simple way, the results of a test is an objective measure to tell us whether we pass or fail. So there's a simple definition to think about the Lord testing us. And I, I want to kind of go and show you guys, the Bible, it lays out at least two categories of testing. The, the most common we might think about is in the book of James, James chapter 1. It says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So we see this kind of testing, this is one category of testing, and we see how it benefits the Christian. We see how it's for the Christian to grow in endurance. Now, the second way of the, the way that the Bible describes testing, and this one is less common, Um, less talked about. And uh, I think because if uh, if we do talk about it more, that the implications of failing this test is really shocking and devastating for those who uh, do not pass this test. And this is the test that involves us being put on trial, we might say, being put on trial by the justice of God And this test is to prove whether our faith is genuine or not. So when we think about this test, just uh, a chapter ahead in James chapter 2, we see this when James, he says, faith without works is dead. James is telling us to put our faith to the test, and evidence of our faith will have works that follow it. So... Another way we can think about it, if good works, if they're rooted in, uh, in the knowledge that Jesus Christ has, has saved you, well, based on his grace, based on his righteousness, we have the motivation to now go and obey the commandments of God, which is to love him and to love our neighbor. So, you know, simple um, idea about testing. Uh, one is to test our endurance, to stretch us. The other is to test the genuineness of our faith. And another example that in the New Testament, uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5, it says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? And I wanted to bring this to the the forefront before we get to our passage. I think it's relevant, um, not only for understanding what was going on here with Israel, but also relevant to to be aware for ourselves and to even be aware of others, our our brothers, our sisters, people in the church as well. Um, I I wanted to, to say that when we think about, our conversion. When we think about truly belonging to the Lord, um, often there are many false conversions in the church, and it's a reality that um, that especially pastors and uh, leaders of the church are have to be aware about. Um, you know, we we have to be able to to uh, look at someone's fruit and be able to correct them and and restore them so that they would come to repentance. So when we think about a false convert, the only thing worse than a false convert is a self-deceived false convert. Someone who thinks, or someone who never thinks about testing their faith. Someone who never thinks about their commitment or their obedience to the Lord. So when I, when I say all this, I, I want to be careful. Um, I'm still leaving room. I know that there are um, people who who struggle, and they might doubt their faith. Now, I'm saying testing and doubting your faith; those are those are two different things. And um, when you doubt your faith, that's that's op- That's often influenced by an, a subjective, um, maybe emotions or an event. You're doubting your faith because something is happening to you. However, when you test your faith you're going to test your faith with an objective standard, that being God's word. So when we think about this, testing the faith, it's it's uh, relevant for here with Israel. And um, I want us to remember um, a test from the Lord is a circumstance given by him to produce an outcome that, that is an objective, objective manner if we pass or fail. So we can know for sure if we pass God's test. There's no questions about it. We're not gonna be left wondering afterwards if if I'm in or if I'm out. Is my faith genuine or not? We're not gonna be left with questions because God has given us a way to know. And he's gonna give Israel a way to know. if, if uh, If they are obedient to him, that is one way. So this is what happens here with Israel, and uh, really quickly, I think it's important to just to kind of cover. I'm just going to uh, fire out some of this uh, biblical context to keep in mind. I'm not going to go through all these texts, but um, there's a couple things that are important to remember when we approach the book of Judges, um, let alone just chapter three. So first, I want to remind us of the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. God promised Abraham, he, he looked down on earth, nothing that Abraham did, nothing, nothing that uh, Abraham worked to earn God's grace. He just looked down and he picked Abraham right there. And he said, he, he promised him that he was going to bless him with descendants. He was gonna bless his descendants with land. And uh, he was gonna experience a lot of prosperity. Now, the purpose of this promise was to bless the entire world that sometimes we forget that israel was given a people israel was made a people and they were given land but it was in order to do something and it was to bless the nations so that's one thing keep in mind also that after this the people were uh, held captive in egypt they were slaves to the egyptians and when we think about them being slaves, God delivered them out of Egypt. And then shortly after that, he made a covenant with them. And this covenant, it was conditional. It was based on the people's obedience. This, this happens in Exodus chapter 19 through um, all the way to chapters 24. Um, so if you wanted to check that out, but that's important to remember as well. And then in Deuteronomy, we have... The blessings and the cursings of the the covenant. And these are laid out plainly for the people. Uh, There's no questions uh, to be asked after they agreed to the circumstances of the covenant. They signed the contract. So uh, this happened in Deuteronomy. The consequences of what would happen if they disobeyed were made clear to them. Well, we're getting closer to Judges. So uh, in Joshua, This is uh, at the end of Joshua. The promised land has been given to his generation. The first generation of Israel was uh, excluded from entering the promised land. And Joshua entered the land of Canaan and they took over. However, they did not do everything that the Lord asked them to do. Um, They were supposed to wipe out every single Canaanite and everyone that was there in the land. And at the end of Joshua... Um, this generation is known or recognized as a faithful generation, even though they forgot this really important thing. But at the end of Joshua, on his deathbed, um, so to say, um, he's reminding the people, the next generation that's coming, to renew their commitment to the Lord. He wants them to, um, to remember what he's done for his people, all the way from Abraham. He wants them to remember the promise He wants them to remember the deliverance from Egypt. And then he wants them to remember um, what he's done in giving them the land and victory. So he tells the people to renew the covenant. And finally, we arrive here in Judges. And shortly after, well, right after Joshua dies, we see Israel fall into sin. They they fall um, into a cycle of uh, enslavement, not just to the nations, but uh, to their gods. And um, so that's, that is all the background that's kind of going on with Judges. It'd be kind of difficult if we just picked up in Judges 3 and ignore all those things. So, you know, we're going to be juggling a lot, but um, it's important to help us understand. So when we look at these uh, six verses, I want to just give a simple outline Verses 1 and 2, these are the test for war. Test for war. Verses 3 and 4, a test for obedience. And verses 5 and 6, this, uh, these verses explain the results of the test. So very simple outline. Now, The purpose of my sermon tonight, what I want to communicate to everyone, we see three lessons that the Lord is going to teach us. Three lessons that um, by the testing of Israel, and if we we read them and we acknowledge these lessons, they're going to teach us to have better clarity about God's um, big plan of redemption. It's going to come... It's going to be crystal clear what God is doing here uh, when we see what these three lessons are teaching us. And Judges, this section of Judges, is it's its kind of like a final introduction to uh, introduce all the Judges. The first Judge is going to be coming up right after. So this final introductory s- section, when we see the, the depravity of Israel's sin and their apostasy and how the Lord puts them on trial so that he's going to show them an objective way of how they failed of keeping his commandments. Well, this lesson, it's going to be useful for us in teaching us to see the grace of God. So let's go ahead and look at verse 1. The Lord, he left these nations. And this is what he said he was going to do. The Lord said he's going to leave the nations and the, the Canaanites and all the other tribes if they didn't wipe them all out, that they would uh, continue to come back and they were going to have an influence on Israel. And if you can turn back just a couple pages to the end of Joshua, I want to show you where the Lord says this. So Joshua 23 And then I'm going to read um, verses 11 through 13. So, So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and a trap and a thorn in your eyes until you perish um, from off this good land, which the Lord, your God has given you. So we see right there at the end of Joshua, right before they renewed, he told them, he prophesied what would happen if they would remain and they understood and they renewed their covenant with him. But yet, they continued um, They continued in sin. They continued to disobey um, the Lord. And finally, in verse 1, we see that the righteous anger of God against sin is demonstrated by leaving the nations there. And if we could imagine being the original audience this book was intended for, if we could imagine reading this and understanding or realizing these were these were our parents. This was our previous generations before us. And if we follow all the way from Genesis, because the original audience, they would have had uh, understanding of uh, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books. Um, they would have read, most likely, Joshua. So having this background of seeing God save, deliver, rescue Israel over and over again, and just reading about it, reading about your your Grandparents, failures, and just thinking, why why is God doing all of this? What what is the Lord up to here? Well, we can know what the Lord is up to, um, especially if we remember Genesis, where it all started in the beginning. um, At the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right after the grace of God is shown, when he preached the first gospel. And um, it's not as clear. This is revealed later. But uh, Genesis 3.15. This is something that, a promise that the people could have held on to. This is the gospel first preached in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, this has been the mission of God. Ever since Genesis, the fall, God's plan of redemption was enacted at this moment. God told us what he was going to do. The seed of the woman referring to Christ. And uh, he was going to bruise the serpent's head, meaning he was going to redeem mankind from their sin caused and and tempted by the serpent. And... um, This is the gospel here. And this meta-narrative throughout the Old Testament, we can follow it from Genesis um, all the way to Malachi. And then in New Testament, we see the coming and the fulfillment of these prophecies. So when we get to Judges, God is finally giving Israel, um, well, it's important when we get to Judges that we remember this promise and then realize that God is finally giving Israel over to their sin, He's giving them what they want. I was thinking about uh, Romans uh, 1.28. They did not see it fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And the nations of Canaan, they were, they were left by the Lord. Um, also, this, this demonstrates the, the sovereignty of God, his control over this situation, and him choosing. Is this better? I'm sorry. To yeah, no, it's okay. This will help the popping. Okay, thanks. Okay. okay, thanks. All right. It should sound better. What were we talking about? All right. Okay. So he left the nations. So not only is uh, a test for them, but this also shows us uh, his sovereignty to leave them. This shows him this shows how God was in control to do this. And he chooses to to do uh, to carry out his his grand plan in this manner. And I was thinking, we recently we've been hearing a lot and even praying for Israel, thinking about war in general, thinking about the what was going to happen when God left these nations there, what happened previously. This is a, you know, this is a rated R book. Judges is, and um, just based on the violence and some of the things that go on, but when we think about our world and how all the different things that go on that causes us to to stay up at night, um, like I was mentioning, Israel, uh, we pray for them, the people affected, the the tragedy that that started all of this, but we can also rest our head on God being in control. We can rest our head, we can sleep with peace, knowing that He is sovereign over the situation and um, He controls the outcome. So I want us to, I want to encourage us to continue to pray for the situation, continue to pray for everything going on in the world that just gets us down. But let's continue to pray in a way that we, we, uh, we rely on, on God's grace and Him being in control of it all. And then also, this kind of brings, and I'm I'm not going to stay here long. I promise I won't stay here long. This brings uh, the idea of the end times. Everyone's eschatology is on the plate now. And it brings a lot of questions. And the only thing I wanted to to mention here is if your eschatology constantly produces fear and anxiety and just um, wondering what prophecy is being fulfilled next, if it produces an obsession over matters we have no control over, well, I, I would say that's an unhealthy distraction. And uh, I, w- I would just point you to um, something we talked about. Like, we have ministries like Love Life and others. We have our hands full here in our own community. So for us to be distracted by so much else that is going on, I don't want to discourage staying informed. That's not what I'm saying. Stay informed. Stay informed. However, if, we, if it turns into a hyper focus um, that leads away from our, our call to evangelize and disciple our neighbors around us, well, then I think we need to uh, be balanced out a little bit. So I just wanted to say that back to our text. No more eschatology. <laughs> so he leaves these nations here. We're not even through first, verse one yet. But instead, instead of uh, fighting for Israel like he did in the past, He's going to put them on trial. Their sins, they're going to reveal their true allegiance. So moving to verse 2, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. So the phrase, in order that, that's a purpose clause. It it makes it very clear uh, what God is doing here. Now, um, notice how in verse 1, um, and then after the the clause, the purpose, um, it's sandwiched between two um, descriptions, very identical descriptions of what generation is what gener- what generation is going to be tested, and it's those who have not experienced any wars of Canaan. So the wars of Canaan is re- referring to when um, Israel first attacked the land of Canaan, and the, the wars that won them the promised land and those who had not experienced it formerly. So that's describing the same group of people, and the emphasis here is on the younger generation of Joshua, um, those who had not experienced war. Um, instead, this this next generation, they, they were busy settling in with the enemies. And uh, when we think about why did they not experience war, well, well one, they're... The previous generation, their their parents, they had already fought and they were already victorious. So there would have been no reason for them to fight as well. So, but they were going to be tested in this way. And uh, the reason why that they were being tested, I I probably spent the most time studying this part. I, I just couldn't understand why they would be tested for war. But the reason why that they were being tested was not for God to build up their army for for the future. It wasn't for them to to establish or to learn um, strategies of warfare or anything like that. No, they were being tested so that they could feel the cost of war when it's fought without the Lord. They were being tested. This was gonna be the first time Israel fought an army without the Lord's help. So this test, it was going to be used as an objective standard because they were going to fail. Um, Spoiler alert, they're going to fail. This test was an objective way to prove to Israel that they were not made out for war. They were not cut out for it. And for them to realize how much they needed the Lord. We We read back in Joshua that the Lord was with them in battle. He told them, just, just go into the land. It's already yours. I'm giving you the victory. So the previous generation, they, it's not like they were trained in war and as if they were um, just battle ready, and they could have taken out any army without the Lord's help. No, they never relied on their own tactics. It was the Lord at all the times. So this next generation, they're going to learn the cost of not having God on their team. And just thinking about some application, just thinking about what are some questions we can ask ourselves um, related to this, I, I was just thinking, how many times have I been humbled and realized that I tried doing something without the Lord's help? How many times have I done something my own way and it just turned into disaster, and I think this is an application here is when we uh, when we do things on our own and we decide not to consult the Lord in prayer or you know look to his word for wisdom we're often we're going to find ourselves in a position where he's testing us and showing us this is the result of of doing things on your own and even worse than that, how many times have you messed around with sin, messed around to see how close you can get to it, played with fire, not realizing the Lord was keeping you, not realizing that God was protecting you from being enslaved to your sin. And yet, one day you just wake up and you're entangled in it. And I think that happens so often that we don't realize how much God is protecting us from, from sin, from dangers, and uh, we, we take it for granted. I'll be the first to say I take it for granted. And it's a reality that God's people, um, he, they, we take his protection for granted. But it's important to remember this, it's, it's a test. This is a straightforward way of knowing that we have failed, so we should not ignore it, don't dismiss the results of the test. And uh, by his grace, if you realize the results, if you realize the failing, well, that's his grace instructing you on what to do next. So moving to verse 3, these four pagan nations that are mentioned here, these are um, all relevant to the, to the geography of Canaan, um, the area, the land, um, you can go really in-depth with the study as far as where they're located and um, the significance of each nation. However, for our purposes and what's important for us to keep in mind, the, the nations mentioned in verse 3 and verse 5, the reason why these are mentioned is because all these nations, they inhabit the entire land of Canaan. So from the the north, the south, all areas inhabited by Canaanites, And what this is supposed to, uh, for the reader to understand was um, all of Israel, which was separated into tribes, they would have been divided into tribes. There wasn't one tribe that was not under some kind of Canaan influence. There was not one tribe that did not have the Canaanites living within them or amongst them. So all these nations, these tribes, these Canaanites that are mentioned here, that is to tell us all of Israel was susceptible to the test of the Lord. All of Israel, as some commentators put it, all of Israel had been become completely Canaanized. And the church, God's people today, the church, we face the same threat that Israel faced. But ours, we wouldn't call it being Canaanized, we would call it being secularized. And we have the risk of becoming secularized by the world. And it's really concerning when the church starts to function like the world, starts to look like the world, starts to act like the world, likes what the world likes, and tries to cater to the world. It's really concerning. And when churches, when, when the churches become, and I'm talking about local individualized churches, um, I don't want to broad brush the entire universal church, but when we look at local churches and when they become more concerned with, with being friendly to the world, when God tells the church to frown at what the world does, when the church becomes comfortable um, and concerned with the world's needs, instead of being concerned with, with conveying the convictions of Scripture, or when we think of the church being passive and indifferent towards the society's issues and controversial uh, things and matters at hand, instead of preaching the truth, well, that's, that's really concerning. And I just mentioned that here, not to, not to point fingers at our church, but for us to be aware of the dangers of loving the world. And God, he will not allow his bride to, to live like this forever. He will, <clears throat> he will send his loving discipline, and he will make things right. Well, this is a depressing text, so um, but, but we, got, we have some uh, future redemption coming, so let's move on to verse 4. This is the second mentioning of testing. And this one is testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. So with the mention of Moses, we have to think back to the uh, the covenant made at Mount Sinai back in Exodus 19, like I mentioned. And then we also think about the 10 commandments given to Moses. He was given the commandments and then Um, He gives them to the people they agreed to follow and obey the commandments of the Lord. And um, all this context, it raises the idea or it makes us think about the, the nature of the Old Covenant where God demanded obedience in return for blessing. God made a deal with his people. If you obey, I will bless. If you disobey, I will curse. And we see this is how the old covenant operated. And the other aspect of it is that in order to receive forgiveness of sins, because they were not able to keep the commandments, in order to keep or to receive forgiveness of sin, the only way to do that was through the shedding of blood, and it was through animal sacrifice. So this was not sustainable. The old covenant with Moses, the the priests, the sacrifices, the commandments. It was not sustainable. It was never meant to be sustainable. And that, we're going to see that kind of unfold a little bit. So moving on to, to verse 5, we're going to see how the Old Covenant is relevant here. But moving on to verse 5, we have this section. This is kind of like a report card in the in the in the way that the author writes this. He gives us, the, the two tests in verses one through four. And now he's telling us how Israel did. He wants us to, to really feel the disappointment, the failure of Israel. And it says, they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. This complete dismissal of God's commandments is what is most noticeable here. God specifically warned them not to do these exact things, not to intermarry, not to worship and follow the gods. And they did exactly against what God commanded. And when you notice, when we look at the three, uh, the three acts here uh, of marrying their daughters um, and then giving their daughters to the sons, and then serving their gods, we see a gradual, or I I should say a decrease, or however you want to look at it. Each of these acts, they're an increase in depravity and severity of their sin with the conclusion of just full-on pagan worship. And like I mentioned, um, Israel, they were never going to succeed under the Old Covenant. It was going to be impossible for them and the fact that they failed this test of obedience, this wasn't the first time they failed, but right here, where God is saying enough is enough, um, He's showing Israel that by failing this test, once again, the burden of keeping the law, the burden of trying to earn God's blessing through obedience was not his design. It's not what he wanted to do. And um, this should have proven, this should have been the first test back at Mount Sinai, back in Exodus with Moses, Israel should have recognized that. They should have recognized it wasn't enough and there's something more to it. And instead of trying to earn salvation through obedience, they should have realized their inability to earn God's blessing. So we see that the failing, um, Israel failing, it it points to God's overarching plan. Remember, we have all these things in the background. And we see how the old covenant is actually, it's pointing to the new covenant. And as we get closer, we have some really good news. Um, I would like for you to turn to Galatians chapter three. So I think Galatians really helps us out here. Galatians chapter 3, verse... uh, We're going to start at 21. So it says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody custody under the law, being shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law was be, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, or we might say point us to Christ. So that we may be justified by faith. So, when we see the law, you can turn back to Judges. When we see the reference to Moses and the commandments given, the test of obedience, the proof was their failing, the proof was that they could not um, fulfill God's requirements of obeying. And that should have told them that that result of not being able to keep the commandments, that was God's way of saying that this was not the way. This covenant is pointing to something I said back in Genesis and uh, referring to the promise of the one who would come through the woman. So when we think about this, saving faith was believing God would keep his word to save and redeem. We can maybe simplify it like that. The Old Testament, we know that Abraham, he was justified by faith. The same way that Abraham was justified by faith, by believing God. When God told him he was going to do something, he believed God. He believed God's promises. The same way that Abraham was saved was the same way that the people of Israel could have been saved. However, we see the results and we see that they failed the test. And just to, to shift from Israel, how, how are you doing on this test so far? Have you failed this test of faith? Are you constantly feeling frustrated, being enslaved to sin? Do you constantly feel like you're losing the battle? Well, I wanted to remind us that the law is the tutor that points us to Christ. And I don't want anyone to leave here tonight um, leaving like the rich young ruler, sad and depressed, because when he came to Jesus, he had the right question. He asked Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? That's a pretty good question to ask, especially Jesus, right? And Jesus tells him, knowing him, right, Jesus is omniscient. He knew everything about him knowing, um, well, one, he said, why do you call me good? He called him a good teacher. And he wanted him to say, because you're God, right? That would have been the best answer that the uh, rich young ruler could have said. Well, he gives him a test, a litmus test of the commandments. He takes them back to the commandments their fathers were given, his father was given through Moses. And he tells him, well, you know the law. And he goes through the law with him. And the rich young ruler, not realizing that, he has indeed failed the test. He wants to claim that he's kept the law. And uh, if you think you've kept the law, you're, you're going to be like the rich young ruler. But Jesus, he quickly humbles him because he's going to attack one of the things that he was not giving up. And he attacked his, his riches. He attacked his comfort. And he told him to, to sell everything that he had, come back and follow me. And he went away sad. And when we think about this, Jesus continues after he leaves. He he says, look how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the people listening, those who were nearby, saw this entire interaction. Those who would have had probably the same understanding as the rich young ruler. They would have all been under uh, thinking about the, that they're under the law, that the way to earn salvation was through obedience, um, with no regard to God's promise of a future seed. And, he t- and they asked, well, who can be saved? If these are the circumstances, if you're saying it's impossible for man to follow the law and be saved, because that's what Jesus was saying, then who can be saved? Who who can meet these requirements? And Jesus, he rightly points out that they're on the right track. They're asking the right questions. And he says, the things that are impossible with people or with men are possible with God. And again, he's referring to what God has done. He's referring to God's plan of redemption the plan of redemption that can be seen all through judges. But yet, it's only hinted at. The book of Judges is only giving a sneak preview because when we read in chapter 2, it said, when God sent a judge, once that judge died, the people would fall back into sin. So God is giving us a, a foreshadowing of a judge who would never die of a judge, a final judge, a deliverer, and that being Christ. So when we think about future redemption, the reason why future redemption is so glorious, the reason why God's grace, now that it's been revealed to us, we have the whole counsel of God's word, the reason why that is so good to us is because we can see that grace on the backdrop, the black backdrop of sin. And it's been described many times when you have a diamond. You always want to look at a diamond with a black backdrop because you can see the shine. You can see every texture of it. And in the same way, we, we come to appreciate, we come to realize what God was doing all along through the ups and downs, through delivering Israel, through them falling into cycles and falling even further away from sin or in sin, well, God was just showing off his grace more and more. And then I just want to leave off with what we have now, the future redemption. its It's been revealed to us now. It was hidden to Israel. It was hidden, but still God gave them a word, something they can hold on to. That was enough. But now we have God's full revelation to understand the gospel. Amen. We don't have an excuse like, well, Israel didn't have an excuse either. Um, but for them, it was somewhat revealed or hidden. For us, it's in plain view. And when we think about God, he sent the final judge who would come and he died one time only to, to rise again and to live forever and continually meditate, uh, mediate for, on our behalf, on my behalf, for the sins of the world— when we think of that, that is God's glorious gospel, for Him to do that for us. And in response, He's asking us. And here's the key: if you if you realize you failed the test, well, God's not leaving you there. If you realize you utterly failed, and you know that you cannot earn the salvation of the Lord, if you uh, recognize and acknowledge your sin. Well, God has given you an answer, and he gives us the answer in Christ, and like I said, he mediates for us, and on the basis of who he is and on what he's done, he tells us to trust in him, to to leave our sins behind, trust in him as a savior, the same way that we would trust a parachute to save our lives if we jumped out of a plane. That's the same way we want to trust Christ. We, we trust him. We leave our sin behind. Realizing his death on the cross, it took on the wrath of God. And it delivers us. It frees us from that judgment of the Lord. And this testing of Israel, this, these verses one through six, this, the sin of Israel, the testing, their failure, everything going on here, it all points to the gospel God's glorious gospel. So let us pray. Lord, we are undeserving of this good news. Lord, we can't comprehend the the plan of redemption that you had from the very beginning. This was always plan A for Jesus to come and to die for the sins of sinners. And Lord, would this good news be impressed on our hearts tonight? Would this good news be freeing to us? Would we realize that our faith is dependent on what Christ has done? Would you please help us to grow in our understanding of the gospel, as there's many believers here tonight? Would you help us to learn every, um, every part of the gospel so we can be more encouraged in our faith, so we can be under the first test, which is to produce endurance. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for your grace. So I praise you and thank you for everyone here. Would you bless our evening? In Jesus' name, amen.